And we are back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and streaming online at cfmu.ca. Don't forget to tune in to Kojiko Channel 288, where we also broadcast. And as promised, we have a very special interview today. Um, I have a guest who is one of the leading authorities and researchers on imperial intervention into West Asia, or as it's currently known, uh, the Middle East. And I'm, of course, referring to Dr. Tim Anderson, the director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies in Sydney. I think we have him on the line right now. Uh, Tim, are you with us? Hi, Brendan. Yes, I am. Thanks very much. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. We almost missed you because of daylight savings time, but I'm very grateful now. We've talked before on this program about your earlier book, The Dirty War on Syria, which again is a sort of a unreserved recommendation from me to everyone that you should go pick up a copy of The Dirty War on Syria right now if you haven't already. Um, now that alone was a very important book. And I guess, Tim, what you had to do back then maybe was convince people that there was, in fact, a war on Syria, uh, because our own propaganda here in the West was was trying to conceal that fact. But this title of your new book that we're discussing today, The Axis of Resistance, it refers to a, a new period of more open resistance to U.S. designs than was perhaps the case at the outset of the war on Syria. Or, or maybe it you know, refers to a more optimistic situation, because things have not exactly gone to plan for the empire. And certainly that comes across in your new book. So I'm wondering, when we talk about empire, we talk about resistance, we're looking primarily at the United States and its hegemony over that uh, region. So what broadly could you say that the United States was trying to achieve in West Asia? Maybe where has it experienced some setbacks since the turn of the millennium? Yes, thanks for that. Um, look, I think the theme of this book is that we can't really understand the wars in the Middle East, and there are about eight wars going on at the moment, unless we look at them in their entirety as part of a plan uh, dubbed, it was given a name, the New Middle East, by Condoleezza Rice and the Bush uh, regime back in 2006. And their concept was to have a, you know, a group of countries united in freedom and democracy and so on, all the things that are associated with um, invasions and dirty wars and so on these days, led by the U.S. with their protégés, Israel and Saudi Arabia, um, helping them along the way. And the war on Syria has to be understood in that context too. The resistance in Palestine needs to be understood in that context. The resistance from Hezbollah in Lebanon, the rise of the Hashid al-Shabi, the the popular mobilization units in Iraq, uh, the role of Iran and the reason why why Iran is so demonized by Israel and the U.S. We can't understand those things unless we look at what's happening at a regional level. So that's the the, the message I'm trying to convey with this book, Access of Resistance. Yes. One of the main things that come across in the book is that we're dealing with primarily one hegemonic imperialism. It's a kind of a U.S.-led Western imperialism comprised of the United States, its European vassals, the Saudi vassals, Israel, and so on. And what they're facing is um, a resistance in that region that is heterodox. It's, it's comprised of different yeah. elements. 
you know, I mean, they're not the same religiously, as you point out. Uh, they're not the same politically. They're not the same geographically. But they are currently actively working together to try to remove foreign domination from the region. So I guess for the listeners, we're talking about, you know, Iran, we're talking about Hezbollah, the the PMU. Uh, those are some of the primary actors, I suppose. Yes, that's right. I think um, the expression I use is that resistance has a common character, but a diverse personality. So as you pointed out, you know, you've got a range of different groups in Palestine. You have a, a Shia bloc, which is leading the resistance to Israel in, in Lebanon. You have a secular or pluralist state in Syria. You have a religious state in Iran. They are different in their personalities, but their character in the sense of um, demanding independence, trying to expel the foreign aggressor. And it is the U.S. here. It's, it, of course, at times the U.S. Uh, calls or, or refers to allies, such as Britain and France, for example, some of the leading other NATO members, but really it is a project led by a single state, as empires always have been, because empires are dictatorial um, uh, regimes with a single supreme leader with the power of life and death, and it doesn't happen in a broad cultural sense or in a, uh, a sense of co- a real coalition of natures. Empires don't really have allies. You know, They have their interests and they have their their slave, what did you call them? Peons, their slaves, their, 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 their minions and so on in different forms. Uh, so, for example, if you look at the economic war, which is an important part of the, the overall war in the region, it was only really the U.S. administration which rejected that nuclear deal with Iran. The Europeans wanted to uh, maintain or develop um, economic relations with Iran, which is a very the biggest, most important independent country in the region, but they didn't have the capacity to do so. They couldn't resist the U.S. will in that circumstance because of the power that the U.S. administration has over uh, European companies which are linked to and doing business with the U.S. Um, I say this has become very open with the Trump administration, but we should look back at the Obama administration to see, for example, with the, the sanctions against Cuba, for example, which were a precursor to the the much broader sanctions against most of the West Asian region these days. Um, in, under the Obama, Obama administration, um, European banks were fined billions of dollars, billions of dollars for doing business with uh, Iran and Cuba principally, a few other countries, but mainly Iran and Cuba. Now, what capacity does the U.S. have to do this? It doesn't have the power to fine European companies, but, of course, if they want to do business in the U.S., um, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control of the U.S. Treasury, says here is a fine. We can negotiate a little bit depending on your culpability and so on. And in the end, the, the European companies agree to pay these so-called fines and as a price of doing business with the U.S. And that's how the U.S. has controlled European behavior largely in relation to Iran. The Europeans have a, a way to get around that, something called INSTEX, but it hasn't really kicked in properly. So this whole operation in the Middle East, uh, the, the eight wars are really certainly led by the U.S. and the, the so-called allies following behind, most often because they don't have the will or to chart another course for themselves. Yes. You brought up in the very end, the end notes of the book or the afterward, the fact that you personally have been involved in solidarity efforts with Cuba. Uh, you were just bringing that up about the sanctions that were directed against Cuba and how they were a model for what was applied uh, in the Middle East to some extent. Certainly, you were one of the people that was 
relatively well-placed to address what was happening to Libya and Syria and other countries in West Asia uh, because you had already seen how the empire behaved in other regions of the world. And I think that informed your work because if you look at the beginning of the book, you actually, you drew upon an anti-imperial quote from the Latin American region, from Jose Marti. He said... The success of national or local resistance draws from integration into the regional resistance. You make that argument throughout the book in terms of Middle East or West Asia. So for the people that are involved in resisting hegemony, why do you think it's important that they are integrated into regional resistance? Well, this is a theme. Um, You're right to sort of spot that link there. Um, Indeed, even I borrowed the title of the Dirty War in Syria from the Dirty Wars in Latin America from the 70s and 80s, which I lived through and experienced and and visited some of those countries at the time. Um, The Latin American post-colonial experience is a much longer one than most other countries. That is to say, decolonization in Latin America begins more than 200 years ago, and also the process of the so-called second independence, uh, attempting to gain economic independence too. So what developed in that context in Latin America with Bolivar, with Marti, with Fidel Castro, with Chavez in particular in in recent years was uh, Chavez was reiterating this project of Bolivar, hence the Bolivarian Revolution in in Venezuela, the idea that um, they have to get together the, the, the former colonies or the empire, that is to say the Spanish empire or the American one that followed very closely are going to take over. And there's a quote from Marti, I believe it's in that book too, in Axis, that Marti said that the trees have to form ranks so the giant with the seven-league boots cannot pass between them. So they recognised early on, um, the Latin American independence leaders, that they had to come together. They couldn't individually fight Spain or the US, basically. And that was the root of the creation of those big regional organizations under the late Hugo Chavez, the CELAC, the the Community of Latin American Caribbean States, UNASUR, the South American Union, and the ALBA, the progressive bloc of um, the Bolivarian Alternatives, the Bolivarian Alliance. All of those were precisely to create a counter-hegemonic movement and to resist the U.S., which is not possible for little countries like Cuba to do by themselves. You would say that you could say the same thing about Syria. Syria by itself could not resist endlessly the big powers attempting to destroy the the secular Syrian state and replace it with some sort of squabbling uh, sectarian Islamist uh, uh, principalities, which suited their purpose very well. We know U.S. intelligence told us back in 2012 that the idea of a Salafist principality, the Islamic State, which hadn't been created yet, um, it, it entirely suited their purpose because it would isolate Damascus and make the regime in Damascus much, much weaker. So those regional lessons, I think, from Latin America, there's some very strong parallels with West Asia, with the Middle East, and the, the forms of resistance. Now you see, for example, a very strong alliance that's helping the Syrians win, win uh, with um, particularly with Iran, with Russia, also with Hezbollah, and also the PMUs that you mentioned from Iraq too. I've been to Syria several times across to the east and seen Iraqis cooperating, Afghans cooperating in the region, Hezbollah in the western part of the country. You know, so there is that that alliance is what's driving the the victory in Syria these days. Yes, and tying together that alliance is 
the issue or the country of Iran and what it's doing, which you view as critical to the resistance. Um, before we get into that, uh, just for those who are currently tuning in just now, I'm speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson. He's the author of Axis of Resistance, a new book about how countries and movements and peoples in West Asia are banding together to resist imperial power and how that is happening. And, you know, speaking of imperial power, you talked about the sanctions, Tim. You talked about Cuba. You talked about uh, what is then done to Iran and Syria and so on. Now, this is a big book we're talking about. It's hundreds of pages. It contains an enormous amount of context and information for anyone trying to understand the Middle East and this endless war that's been going on and has a lot of people scratching their heads. To help simplify things for readers and for listeners, I thought, I would draw out one of the main themes that ties a lot of this together, a lot of these chapters and arguments, and that is, you know, although the book is called The Axis of Resistance, half of it is about the empire. It, it's about how the empire talks and, and talks to its subjects, talks to its people, legitimizes itself. And it, one of the, the things that empire has to do in order to intervene in Syria, intervene in Libya, intervene all over the place, is they have to undermine international law. Um, and this is a critical, critical point, which is central to your own work, but also to the book itself, because if we're talking about decolonization, then after World War II, you had a, a new international law uh, that was codified, new forms of sovereignty and, and state relationships in which every country in the world was supposed to be treated equally. Every former colony that had become independent was supposed to have the right to carry out its own domestic policy and not be interfered in. So th this whole post-war legal order wasn't just about preventing another war, but it was supposed to incorporate the former colonies. I mean, this kind of represented a new phase in human liberation, don't you think? Yes, yes. The, we can talk about a post-colonial era, really, beginning after the Second World War and culminating in a principle which I draw a lot of attention to um, in the book and elsewhere, the principle of self-determination, which was set into a, uh, a declaration from the UN General Assembly in 1960, uh, the principle of a people, we're not talking even about a state here, of a people to self-determination, which had very wide implications. And that word for word was ported out of the Declaration on Decolonization in 1960 and put into the Twin Covenants on Human Rights in 1966. So uh, although a lot of people that talk about human rights don't really recognise it, the UN jurisprudence on human rights says the first principle, the right of the people to self-determination, is the foundation of all the other rights because if the people cannot determine their own future in their own uh, accountable body, representative bodies, for example, that is to say, the modern states, the post-colonial states, then none of the other rights can be guaranteed, can be protected. And that is a principle, interestingly and historically, if we go back to 1960 and see who supported it. The Soviet Union, all of the former colonies supported it, and uh, no one opposed it, but there were nine, I think, or ten abstentions, and all of those countries were the countries that at that time, in 1960, had colonies. So, in other words... The Western powers, Britain, US, Australia, Canada, um, the countries that had colonies or colonial-like relations um, abstained from. They couldn't oppose this principle 
but they didn't want to support it either. So much later on, if we fast forward to the current era when there's talk about intervention in the name of human rights, of course they're forgetting, they're bypassing that important foundational Article 1 of the International Bill of Rights. And that article is there precisely because of imperialism and colonialism. But what does the self-determination mean? It means that people, without outside interference, without outside intervention, without patronage and with foreign aid and a humanitarian intervention determine their own future and create their own society and protect their own society. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, it's this theme that unites several substantial chapters in the book. And I, you know, I'm not going to bring out all the examples, but when you talk about ch- uh, sanctions and you have an entire chapter about how the United States uh, employs sanctions against these countries in West Asia, against the resistance axis, these sanctions are carried out as a means of undermining Global South self-determination, and, and they're part of this hybrid warfare as well. So broadly speaking, we can't go into the million different examples of sanctions, but they're supposed to be conducted in coordination with the population that they're supposed to help. Like I think you looked at the example of, was it South Africa? You looked at how one way of doing yeah. sanctions. So how are sanctions supposed to work? Well, the South African case is interesting because it shows that sanctions uh, per se are not necessarily illegal acts of war. How they're being used unilaterally these days are, in fact, there's three reasons um, why the unilateral sanctions the U.S. is using, for example, against Iran, against a number of other countries, are illegal. One is that they are, for example, the sanctions against Iran and Syria, they're aimed to hurt populations. Their aim is to hurt populations and to bring about, to coerce political change that the U.S. wants. Secondly, um, they involve third parties. They necessarily hurt third parties. And uh, so there are a, a number, of, and, and, they're, and they're, of course, um, they contrary to the U.N. Charter in the, in the way that they interfere in the, the self-determination of those countries. So by and large, the character of those sanctions has been... And it, you could say the same about Cuba or about the sanctions against Venezuela now. You know Venezuela has a action in the International Court of Justice against the U.S. for the sanctions on Venezuela, which are designed to hurt the Venezuelan people, um, stealing their resources from them and so on. But if you look at the South African case, you can see there was a way in which sanctions might have been consistent with international law and also consistent with the political principle of self-determination in that when they were first um, conceived in the late 50s and 60s in South Africa, there was a process by which um, a great deal of domestic support was gained for the sanctions. The people who were going to be affected, South African people, mainly black South African people, were um, consulted and they supported the move to sanction their their system from outside. So there was a, a process which led to the international sanctions later on in the 60s and 70s, which was had a popular base. We haven't got the same thing happening with Iran or Syria these days because the US just rushes in and says, we're doing this because this has to happen, so-and-so has to go, and there has to be this sort of system. And they put together a group of countries that say, this is the real official government of Iran or Libya or Syria or whoever it is outside the country and uh, there's no real sense of political legitimacy and there is that deep illegality. Were there, a, were there a tribunal that might determine it? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with Venezuela's action in the ICJ, but Venezuela, I believe, is doing it as a flagship to show the character of 
these sanctions these days, which are effectively genocidal. They're aimed to bring about desperation, um, an uprising against the government to try and overthrow the, the misery and the desperation we're in. We, there's a long history of um, uncovering the motives for those sanctions against Cuba, for example, which are now almost 60 years old. And all of those sort of phrases, you know, to incite desperation in the people, to ring about hunger. I think the Secretary of State Pompeo said something like, if the Iranian regime wants its people to eat, you know, it will do this, you know, which is deliberately exposing the illegality in two heads. One is that they intend to hurt the Iranian people. Uh, secondly, that they are intended as political coercion, both things which are illegal under international law. But of course, the, the big power, the empire, never sees itself as subject to international law. International law is just a tool that can be used against other people. Yes, uh, the sense I'm getting, of course, from the book and from listening to you is that the sanctions that the West organizes are primarily organized from outside these targeted countries, from outside Iran and Syria, and and they're done in a punitive fashion, like you said, like what Pompeo said, which is the country has to make this decision or its citizens will starve. And you look at that in that context of the West trying to undermine the legally enshrined sovereignty of these countries interfering in its domestic affairs. So, you know, concurrent with that, you have a discussion on humanitarian intervention. And, I mean, that's a big chapter. It looks at organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and uh, even more infamous ones like the White Helmets, the Syria Campaign, all of these things. And what they have in common, or what these organizations seem to be doing, is engaging in what you call uh, vexatious propaganda, and this is um, a propaganda that sovereign states are forced to respond to. It seems to be these kind of silly themes that are brought up and over and over again, like the government is killing its own people, or the Syri- Syrian government does not have the right to use force against an armed invasion. So it, this, this forces these countries to then respond to these outside claims? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, vexatious because it's sim- the simple repetition of those ideas, you know, as the propagandists of the past pointed out, you just have to repeat the big lie so many times and people will believe it. Because now, for example, if you have, uh, for example, you know, evidence emerges, independent evidence emerges that the claims of a chemical weapon attack by the Syrian army on a part of the uh, areas occupied by the armed groups in Syria, there was a chemical attack there, and evidence emerges that this was fake, it was staged. But what many people in the Western narrative will say now is, oh, well, but that doesn't matter because Assad committed so many other crimes that doesn't really matter. And that's the that's the effect of this uh, vexatious propaganda. They will just say there's so many crimes that it doesn't matter that um, this one was found to be faked or wrong or misleading or something because there's all these others. What are all these others? Well, it doesn't matter. It all blurs into a, a sense that was created from the beginning of this conflict, um, of course, in relation to Syria, you didn't have anything of that going on in 2010. I, I, I find it amusing sometimes to have a look at some of the media reports in 2010 about Syria now and how the whole country was being spoken of in the BBC, for example, or, or the US, you know, the Western state media. Um, and it was very different terms. After 2011, it's very hard to get a sensible phrase out of the British or the U.S. state media about Syria, but before, there was a very different discussion. Well, that's a very good point, Tim, and I remember it myself, because 
all of a sudden, out of nowhere, was all of this negative propaganda from everywhere about Syria. Mm. And if you go back to 2010 and look at the articles, it's like, oh, look at the stylish Mrs. Assad, and she's got this nice dress. Yeah. And you know, th and then the next year, oh, Assad is killing his own people, he's machine gunning children, yeah. helicopters, and, and it just came like a tsunami. And, um, and, Brendan, and Brendan, here's something important. People actually believe this. A lot of Western people actually believe this. It was very successful propaganda, you know. They uh, and how is it that after several years after the weapons of mass destruction um, scam of Iraq, which helped destroy hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq and do irreparable damage to the country, it's only just starting to get back onto its knees. That country as as an independent country now. Um, how is it that just a few years after that scam? They could do the same thing all over again with Syria, the chemical weapons stock. You know, it was successful. They kept running them. But if you look at the independent evidence, I have a chapter on this in the book too, none of the independent evidence discredits every single one of those claims against the Syrian army. But people believe it. So I think actually there's something very interesting for our culture, let's say Western culture or English-speaking cultures. How is it that people were fooled so easily by this propaganda? How is it that our very highly educated populations came to believe these obvious lies? Well, you know what? You actually did write about that in terms of exploring that question and trying to answer it. From my own notes, I mean, I asked myself, why has the war on West Asia gone unchallenged for so long in the West? And you pointed out several factors. There's the, the colonial savior complex, um, elite consensus, the allure of humanitarianism. The first thing you pointed out was that the Western liberal left walked away from the anti-war movement and the analysis of anti-war questions. So as we, I've talked about on this program before, when Obama got in, a lot of liberals just walked away from the issue of the so-called war on terror. And that weakened the analysis. It weakened and reduced the analysis of war. Very much fewer people were doing it. Um, but there's also things in our culture that make us susceptible to going on yeah. these wars. That, so you talked about the colonial savior complex, this allure of humanitarianism. We want to believe that we're helping and that we're the only ones that can fix it. But you also talked mm -hmm. about elite consensus. Maybe you want to just let us know there's different kinds of elites or different factions in, for example, the United States between liberal, liberals and conservatives in their approach to empire, but they, they are united yeah. in the empire. So they have different approach, but they still want the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's something about Western history that's important. And as you say, in the U.S., there's a sort of a, uh, there's a model which does apply to a lot of other countries like Canada and Australia that you have a conservative or a realist wing sometimes it's called realism in the sense that not not realist in the sense of pragmatic but in the realist in the sense of directly addressing interests you know uh, trump says that you know we want this bush says we want this um and then there's liberal wing and the liberal wing has is a lot better at camouflaging and um uh, trying to legitimize the the illegitimate aims of empire basically because under under international norms what empires do is completely illegitimate in a post-colonial era. But it's in the 21st century, I believe, it's been the liberal wing of Western hegemonic culture, let's say, that has driven the most successful projects, that is to say, co-opted large parts of the population, whether they're left or liberal, um, with this 
language. Sometimes the conservatives or the realists pick it up. You'll see now that George W. Bush um, has a foundation which is supporting the rights of women and girls in Afghanistan. Now, Amnesty International picked that up. We, we know that Afghanistan wasn't invaded for the rights of women and girls. We know that the occupation, the almost 20-year occupation, has not advanced the rights of women and girls very much because the U.S. doesn't even control much of the country. But um, that pretext is used to try and legitimise, and, and if you looked at, I think it was 2012, um, NATO had a conference, I think it was in Chicago, somewhere in North America, and Amnesty International put up billboards saying, NATO, keep the progress going as though a 10-year military occupation of a Middle East country was a good thing and somehow, you know, conducive for the rights of um, women and girls in that country. It was nothing of the sort. I think Amnesty was shamed into withdrawing those things. But what happened there in terms of forming elite consensus was um, that in the then-Democrat administration, uh, an advisor to Hillary Clinton um, had moved from being advised to Hillary to being the head of Amnesty International in the US. So there was this smooth transition, and there is this smooth transition backwards and forwards between, for example, the US State Department and some of these important international human rights groups, uh, particularly Amnesty and also Human Rights Watch, which was created more or less by the liberal arm of the, the US uh, elite or the, the liberal foreign policy arm of the US elite to target its enemies. You know, Human Rights Watch initially was set up as Helsinki Watch to try and run human rights arguments against the old Soviet Union in the late 70s. Um, since then, you would see that the, uh, it's, it's really doing the business of trying to delegitimize de independent uh, governments in Latin America, Cuba, Venezuela... Bolivia under Evo Morales, for example, they've been the targets rather than the client states like Colombia, for example. And similarly in the Middle East, the Human Rights Watch will, will go for typically the independent states yes. and avoid uh, Israel typically, for example. Well, uh, you've certainly dedicated time in a chapter, time and space, to th how these humanitarian so-called organizations are functioning. And people can find it in the book. And you've certainly welded this all together, these themes as to how the empire is legitimating its activity. Before we close out, we should focus a little more on the resistance axis itself. I know that the book describes in detail how various parts that make up this resistance in West Asia are very often mischaracterized here in the West. They're called sectarian, for example. Um, they're shown as being unpopular when they're not. Hezbollah, your study of Hezbollah is a great example of how uh, these elements are not sectarian and their military strategies are quite popular. Um, one of the things that struck me, I suppose, as being extraordinarily relevant uh, right now is your treatment of the, the popular mobilization units. Uh, you mentioned earlier the, the Iraqi PMUs, and they seem to have become a significant factor in the military situation in Iraq um, and in resistance itself. You know, I'm just thinking your book prefigured, in a sense, what was going to happen. It it anticipated the assassination of General Soleimani, um, which, <laughs> ironically, I was going to interview you in January, and then that happened and uh, threw everything off into disarray for a month over here. Um, but that, yeah. Yeah, that being the case, let me just read a very brief excerpt from page uh, 303. You, you said, Iran's Quds Force leader, General Soleimani, reporting to his leader, Khomeini, in late 2017 
announced the termination of the rule of this vicious, cursed entity, ISIS, by the resistance of the Iraqi and Syrian governments and the perseverance of their armies. General Soleimani's personal supervision of operations across four allied countries shows why Iran is feared by both Tel Aviv and Washington. And you had more to say about that, but this makes it very easy to understand why the United States went out of its way to conduct this action, don't you think? Yes, they. I mean, they hadn't. Um, they hadn't done it before because even they and. Um, while the U.S. was maintaining the pretext that its very presence in Iraq in that in that time in recent years has been to fight was was to fight ISIS, and then uh, of course Trump tried to claim credit for the elimination of ISIS by, by U.S. efforts. And while that was going on, there was this tremendous coordination between uh, national forces of the neighbouring countries of Iran, Iraq, and Syria to eliminate ISIS, which was committing terrible atrocity against their own people, and then mind the occasional American who was publicly executed, but really the, you know, the, the Syrians and the Iraqis, um, and to some extent the Iranians also were, were being killed by these people. So, um, But nevertheless, the, the U.S. media even to some extent credited uh, Soleimani's role. If you go back about two or three years and you'll see some of the, the main corporate U.S. media recognizing his important role there. But um, Trump did something very crude, as is his nature, and waded in and thought, well, Israel wants to get rid of this person, and Israel said, it's not us, it's, you know, we want the U.S. to fight our fights over there. And they carried out this terrible, cowardly murder, really, because he'd been, he and Mohandas had been invited uh, into Baghdad, you know, by the government there, and against every international norm, norm that uh, that assassination was carried out. But so Soleimani was very important not just as an Iranian general, but as a commander who had been in Palestine, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq. Um, I believe he'd been talking to Afghan forces too, you know. So across the region, this man had, had a, a very important role. And um, what we need to understand in an overarching sense, I suppose, is and what the great fear of Israel and the U.S. is that there will be... Uh, the result of these wars will be a much stronger Iran and Iranian-led alliance. Sometimes they speak of an Iranian land bridge, which is to say there will be strategic infrastructure links between across Iran, Iraq, Syria, to the Mediterranean, through Syria or Lebanon, or both, um, to Palestine. And then Israel will be confronted with a very strong uh, adversary, which will be able to place great pressure to democratize um, Palestine, which has become an apartheid state. So... That's why I say, I come back to the first point, that we need to look at the big picture to understand the trajectory of these wars. And Solomon's role certainly was a very important one. And But then again, he was in the position for a long time, and he trained many other commanders. So there's a very strong Soleimani legacy there, too. And I think that was one thing uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the reaction to Soleimani's assassination. Of course, one of the reactions was that there was a big... Um, reaction in social media, a lot of accounts and posts and people were banned because uh, of posting about the Soleimani funeral. This was perhaps an, an unexpected uh, outcome of that assassination. There was a huge outpouring uh, in the region and across the world at the, uh, against this assassination and drawing attention to the funeral. I myself was banned, for example, from Facebook for a month or posting these images of the huge 
funerals in Iraq and in, in Iran for Soleimani and Mohammed. Yes, yes. In fact, I think I heard about that, and uh, many other people faced bans for simply having images and whatnot of General Soleimani yeah. in, inside these Western social media so-called channels. Um, well, I, I think you probably have some thoughts on how this might accelerate the timetable for U.S. withdrawal from the region. But as we close out, I would just mention to listeners that in the book here, Axis of Resistance, Tim Anderson does detail, um, for example, Hezbollah and its history as a resistance organization, its links with popular forces, the public perceptions in Lebanon of, of an organization like Hezbollah, which is then, of course, linked in various ways to Iran and Syria and resistance forces within Iraq, all of which are each given their own treatment in separate chapters as to their origins and all of that. Uh, even the Iraqi PMU, uh, which Tim talks about as a, as a consequence of the U.S. failure to create a functioning state and army in Iraq. So you had these these units come up. So as we close out, I guess the last thing I'd ask you is, now that you're touring this book and you've been able to talk about it, have you been able to go to any of these areas within this resistance axis? Have have you heard from reviewers there, from readers there, in a sense? Has there been any sort of reaction to your book from elements or areas within this resistance axis? Uh, yes, to some extent. I, I visited... Um the region three times last year. I'm about to go back um, next week. Um, but the Arabic version of the book is just coming out now, so in, in a, a wider reaction will come from from that version. Basically, it's being published now in, in Lebanon. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the people uh, that I've been talking with, um, including uh, officials and army people and so on, and some of the resistance organisers, they know my position. I've spoken many times over there at universities and so on. So um, they welcome this in the sense that uh, you mentioned the books about empire. Of course, it's also about resistance, as, as the title suggests. And I think it's very important that we do study resistance because sometimes uh, many of us assume that power dictates history. That is to say, we have to understand power, but we can't really understand how power works unless we also understand how resistance works how little people get together and organize and defeat big power at certain times or how they fail to defeat big power at certain times. I think that's the key to understanding, for example, what's going on in Palestine too, that we have to understand resistance as well as power, as well as empire. Yes, it's not a heart and negri treatment of the world, more of a Jose Marti treatment. No. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. thanks so much, Tim. This is great. We'll recommend this to everyone. We'll get it out there on the podcast and such. So I know it's uh, early in the day for you, but uh, thanks for joining us today on the program. Thanks very much, Brendan. Thanks very much. Okay, bye-bye.